You think we'll make it? All right, all right. So, well, uh, I want to welcome you to week number three of our series, The Daniel Project. And if you haven't grabbed your message notes, uh, go ahead and do that and turn in your Bible to the the third chapter of Daniel. And as you're turning there, I want to remind you of something. Uh, Next Sunday is... One of the biggest days of the years for us is our annual harvest party, one of our biggest outreach events that we, we do all year. Uh, we usually have around 1,500 people who are visiting our campus on that afternoon, and we've expanded things and are planning for a record turnout this year, which means we're going to need more volunteers than ever before. And many, many of you have already signed up. Some of you are even doing double duty, but we still need more people to become part of our harvest party team. And so I'm just letting you know that we need you, encouraging you to step up and give some of your time next Sunday afternoon. Uh, Maybe, I don't know, the rain kept you from stopping by the table last week because it was, you know, it was a vicious rain that came down. You know, fall in California is a hard, hard time. Um, But whatever, you have one more chance, all right? One more chance to sign up uh, you can sign up on the courtyard after the service, and as we've let you know, if you serve for two hours, we'll give you free admission. So I hope you'll be part of that and be praying uh, for that event that God will use it uh, in our community. Well, we have been exploring together through the life of a remarkable man what it means to live wisely in Babylon, to live wisely in exile, to live wisely in a secular culture. And the fundamental idea that I've been telling you about that runs through this entire book is that God is sovereign. God is in control. God is in control of the universe. He is in control of history. He is in control of each one of our individual lives. He's in control when the sun is shining, the market's up, and my bills are down. He's also in control when all hell is breaking loose in my life. And today, this morning, every Cubs fan across America woke up believing for once that God is on his throne and God is, he's in control. Well, today, uh, we're going to study, we're going to study the story of three men who had to decide in an incredible moment of crisis if they really believe that. Is God really in control? These men had to decide who they would bow down to. And and this is always, friends, always the issue in Babylon. Is God God? Or will we bow down to some other gods? And we are all, every one of us, tempted to bow down in big ways and small ways. One of the things that Daniel is showing us is this reality that the kingdoms of man, whether personified in the state or in popular culture or in any other of the systems of society, those kingdoms are always striving to make God's people bow down. And so our question today is how can we stand up? When everyone else is bowing down, how can we stand Uh, Today, we're going to see three ways that Christ followers need to stand up. And here's the first one. You can write this down. Stand up when everyone else bows down. Stand up when everyone else bows down. Let's jump in and start reading verses 1 through 7. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. 
So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you are commanded to do, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now here's the picture. The most powerful man in the world establishes a single focus of worship for the people of his empire. You, you need to note that five times in these seven verses, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar set up this image. He had apparently forgotten the lesson of the dream that Daniel had interpreted for him in chapter 2, which included this phrase, that it is God who sets up kings, God who deposes kings. And he had been told, Nebuchadnezzar, your kingdom won't last forever. One day you will die. One day you will give an account to God for your life. That dream was meant to humble Nebuchadnezzar. And so we don't know. Maybe he was trying to defy the dream by making an image not with a head of gold, but gold all the way down, saying that he was not going to succumb, that his kingdom was going to last. Maybe he had just kind of forgotten the dream. We don't really know what, what, whatever he was doing. The people were ready to receive his message. You see, the Babylonian Empire, we know this, is already a pluralistic empire Everyone believed in many gods. Everyone believed in many spiritual pathways. And everything that these people had been taught for years just made them wide open to what Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Now, everyone could have a shared experience, a common frame of reference that would bring them together and would unite them as a community. And this would fulfill what is always the dream of pluralism, that all is one and one is all, that, you know, the gods are like a mountain, just too big to be scaled in any one way. So there, there must be many ways up the mountain. You have your way. I have my way. So let's just take all the different views of religion and God and, and just put them all together into one central image that will represent all of us. See, if all roads to God are the same then why not make just one representation of the road? And the people received that. They welcomed that. It was an absolutely brilliant move by the king. He wanted his vast empire to have some cultural glue. Well, what better way than to play off the, the spiritual sensibilities that transcended all the nations, all the peoples, all the languages? This is probably why this statue was never given a name. It's kind of generic. It's just an image. It's kind of meant to reflect something like a one-world religion. Now, does all of this sound familiar? Don't the cultural underpinnings that Nebuchadnezzar built on sound like a culture you know? I mean, one that's widely pluralistic, that's filled with multiple faith options where all the different spiritual roads are put on one equal footing and the one great value is tolerance. 
See, where, where tolerance is defined as never being allowed to say that one way is right and another way is wrong, where, where unity doesn't mean just getting along or just accepting one another, but, but everyone is, is being made to bow down to whatever dogmas the cultural elites, the most powerful people in the culture currently believe. And then to say that if you don't agree with that, anything else is intolerant. Maybe you can hold to your ideas in your private life. Just have your own personal preferences, but keep them to yourself. See, the culture that gave Nebuchadnezzar the platform to do what he did is in many ways a mirror image of our own. Almost frighteningly so. If you read through this book and get to the prophecy at the end of Daniel and you see what the Bible teaches about what will happen one day at the end of time. Where is culture going? Where is all this leading us? And the Bible is very clear. It's leading toward a one-world religion with one-world dictator, only instead of Nebuchadnezzar, it's going to be the Antichrist. And we see the same message in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. Now, what is interesting to consider at this point is that God gave much of the prophecy of the end of time He gave it to someone living in a culture very similar to what that end of time will look like, both in Daniel's case and then in the Apostle John's case in the the book of Revelation. Now let's move on, because I want us to see in these verses why it's so hard to stand up to that kind of thing, to stand up to Babylon. You see, Babylon, the systems of man, the kingdom of man, always exert enormous pressures on the people who follow God. Let's notice some of the things that Nebuchadnezzar is doing. I'm going to give you four. Uh, Number one, Nebuchadnezzar exerts cultural and psychological pressure on people to conform. He he makes this statue, and he makes it huge, and he he makes it dazzling and beautiful. In other words, he he uses technology of the day. He uses architecture to impress and to overwhelm, to make the people feel like this image was worthy of worship above all other things cultural and psychological pressure. And then he summons all the people uh, who who are leaders, all the heroes of the day. This we might call social pressure. Everyone who was anyone was gathered around this image, the powerful people, the intellectual people, the wise people. They were there to give this image a sense of credibility and importance. In other words, to say to everyone, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history, do you? And then environmental pressure. He uses music, and not just any music, but as we look at the different instruments listed, it's clear to those who know that time that these are instruments from different, from various cultures of the day, bringing them all together. See, music has always been one of the most powerful tools known to man for connecting with people, and the use of culturally relevant music is a bridge to a person's mind and heart. Music is just this universal communicator. See, this is why music can be used for good, like we try to do around here, like churches have done for centuries, using it to worship God. It's also why music can be used for evil. One of the things is you see as you walk through history, as you read the Bible's record, is that Satan cannot take away our spirituality. He cannot destroy the God-shaped hole in every person's heart. He he cannot wipe out the longings of every heart to worship God. And so what he does is the the, the next best thing. 
He takes that spirituality, that God-shaped hole, the longings of our hearts, and then he corrupts them. He pollutes and distorts them. He, he redirects them toward things that aren't worthy of worship. And he often uses the very means of worship that God has ordained. Now, that's not the only significance of music. It's, it's not just something we use to give expression to our feelings. Have you ever noticed that music also creates feelings, right? I mean, upbeat music makes you feel upbeat. Sad music makes you feel moody. Some of you have already experienced that today. You may have come in kind of a little down, maybe a little melancholy for one reason or another. Who knows what it may be? And then you hear, all my fountains. And then your heart begins to to lift and you stand up a little straighter. You know, music just, it creates feelings. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar taps into. He made it so when the music played, then you were to worship. Then you were to fall down. He made it a call to worship. It was this play on human emotions because he was staging an event. He was trying to fill everything with energy and make it all compelling. Do you know who else did that in history? Hitler. Adolf Hitler. It's kind of a little-known fact in America, but it's very well-known in Germany, that he would begin these rallies where he spoke to all these people with lights and with smoke and with these various stage effects. He would use certain forms of music, usually involving rhythmic drums to stir the people emotionally, to repair the people for his word. He would, he would soften them up and open them up musically in very orchestrated ways before he came on to deliver what in many ways was a sermon. Very, very interesting. And so the goal of Nebuchadnezzar was to orchestrate things so that the crowd would act. That's what he was after, this carefully designed, carefully constructed um, scene that he had set. And it was brilliant. Any good leader, and, and, as, and as a consummate manipulator, he knew this, that people will do things in a crowd when they are moved emotionally, things they will never do alone. People are motivated by their surroundings. Now, again, I want you to hit the pause button. I want you to reflect on our culture. Where in our culture are we suddenly moved to feel certain ways and be open to certain actions and to consider certain values? Where are we all universally called to the same table with the same set of emotions and experiences, the same set of things that we all witness simultaneously with other people that can generate certain emotions or certain actions or certain values? Can you say media? I was trying to think of one word for it, and that's the best I could come up with. I'm talking about television, and I'm talking about movies. I'm talking about our, our music, our songs that we sing. I'm talking about social media. Maybe you can put the word entertainment over it. Entertainment shapes so many of our culture's values. And whether it's the media or not, the cultural power the king brought to bear was immense. Cultural pressure is immense in any day, in any time. Why? Well, culture is seductive. Its values, its offers of acceptance, if you go along with the crowd, its offers to experience all that it has. Culture seeks to let us know this is normal, this is not, this is what is accepted, this is what is to be valued, and this is what is not to be valued. And it's very easy when you're living in Babylon to find yourself feeling like even when you're a follower of God, 
that the things the culture puts forward are more real and more tangible and sometimes even to wonder if those things are superior to the ways of God. It's the seduction of culture. And, and when you see it enough through popular culture, through entertainment, maybe even through orchestrated events, then that is what becomes normal. And the things that go against that, well, they're abnormal. And I just want to say, there are a lot of people who name the name of Christ who have been seduced, who have bought into the values and the thinking of our culture because of the things we consume. And we're not even aware, we're not even thinking about it. We're just kind of being in the moment, being in the environment. And sometimes we find ourselves believing and accepting and even saying and even doing things that are clearly contrary to what God says in his word. Now, that was what was in the statue. That's what's going on. All this stuff in the music, in what Nebuchadnezzar was all about. But even that was not enough for the king. And he, he basically said, after he orchestrated all this stuff, by the way, if you don't do this, I mean, if all of this cultural, social, environmental pressure doesn't work, then I'll kill you. Let's call it physical pressure. He actually fires up the furnace so that they could hear it and smell it, see it, and feel it. I mean, if you haven't figured out yet, Nebuchadnezzar is one hardcore dude. And that's what he did. You add it all up, and what you have is just a little bit of pressure to conform, right? Just a little bit. It shouldn't be any surprise that when the music played, the people bowed down. In fact, the, the Hebrew text uh, more accurately kind of says, as soon as the music was playing, the people were falling, the people were bowing. It was instantaneous. They worshiped the statue. The pressure was virtually irresistible. Now, all of that is just a setup for the heart of the story. Here's the second way Christ followers need to stand up. Stand up because you trust in God's power and God's wisdom. Look, look at verses 8 through 12. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, what we see here, and it shouldn't surprise us at the top levels of the powers of culture, that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have some powerful enemies. Verse 8 says, some astrologers came forward and denounced them. And this word denounce is, a Hebrew, is an Aramaic word that literally meant to eat pieces of them. It, it shows their intense hostility. One scholar notes that this may be the very first example historically of religious persecution. These men were probably some Babylonian officials who had watched these three young Jewish men get promoted over them, and they are consumed with jealousy. This is their chance to bring these guys down. And they all knew how Nebuchadnezzar would respond. He was a pretty predictable guy. 
verses 13 through 15 says, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace, then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Now, this is the crux of the matter, this question that Nebuchadnezzar asks. And this question he asks actually falls into the category of a rhetorical question. You know what a rhetorical question is, right? I mean, when someone asks a rhetorical question, they're not looking for information. They're not actually looking for an answer. They're just making a point. For example, when I was a kid growing up, my, my parents had some rhetorical questions they asked. And one of their favorite rhetorical questions was this, do you want a spanking? <laughs> now, no kid would ever say, well, I was thinking about going out to play, but you know, now that you mention it, maybe I need one. Maybe that would benefit my character, so let's just go with your idea. So Nebuchadnezzar asks, what God will deliver you? And he's not looking for information. He is just reminding them that they have no choice. They have no options. But much to his surprise, there are three men who do not treat this as a rhetorical question at all. Because you see, when you have faith that there is a sovereign God who is in control, who oversees the affairs of this world, all of a sudden, you have options. So how did these men reply? Well, these are, you need to know, some of the most amazing words ever spoken. Look at verses 16 through 18. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, and notice they don't use this title. They use his name. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. Now, these next words are unbelievable. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. How do you stand up when everything around you calls you to bow down, when everyone around you is bowing down, where you stand up when you trust that the God we serve is able? That's what they believed. That's what these three men were saying. He is not a myth, oh, Nebuchadnezzar. He is not an abstraction. He is not just a lovely idea. He is not like the statue that you yourself have just built out in the desert. He is real, and he made everything that is. Our God stands above time, space, and history, and he is making himself known to the peoples and the nations of this earth. And Nebuchadnezzar, he is able to save us from the furnace. He is able to deliver us from your hand. The God we serve is able. Now, this is a truth. If you believe it, if you are living in trust, 
that will enable you to stand up and not bow down. Our God is able. Why don't you just say that with me? Our God is able. Our God is able. Therefore, you have options. Therefore, we do not have to live in fear. Therefore, we do not have to live in defeat. Therefore, we do not need to cower before culture. Because every human power, friends, we need to be reminded, every human power will one day find its limit. Every human power will reach the end one day of its tether. And we need to be reminded of that today and every day, that in the face of earthly power that seems so powerful, that seems so wise, where it's easy for us to find ourselves thinking, how could anyone reasonable think any other way? We need to remember our God is able. Because every human being will find their limit one day. Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to find out that he has a limit one day just like every powerful person does. There will be an enemy. There will be a diagnosis. There will be a disease. There will be a loss. There will be age. And one day, for everyone, there will be death. But our God, our God never loses his strength. He always remains able And if that is true, and it is, then we can live in faith and not fear every day, no matter what we face, no matter what the problem is, no matter how deep the discouragement, no matter what emotions we wrestle with, because because the God that we serve is able. And that's good news. And um, if we were a certain kind of church, we'd be talking about right now, I don't know, but this is Southwinds, and so... Uh, Just sit there and look pleased with what you just heard. That'll help me out. So, (laughs) See, this is true on a cultural level with the different things that we face, but it is also true on a daily, personal, individual level in your life, in every one of your lives. The God we serve, he is able to do whatever needs to be done. He is able, this God we serve, to reconcile broken marriages. And I've seen it happen right here. The God we serve is able to liberate people from horrible addictions, and I've seen it happen right here. The God we serve is able to heal damaged bodies. The God we serve is able to forgive the darkest of sins, to turn someone into a brand new creature. I've seen it happen. The God we serve is able to provide for our greatest needs. The God we serve is able to guide us with supernatural wisdom. The God we serve is able to inspire spiritual giftings that change lives beyond human ability. The God we serve is able to soften the hardest human heart anywhere in the world. The God we serve, he is able. He is able. The God we serve is able even when no one else believes that what he says is true. The God we serve is able even when the entire culture in which we live is demanding that we bow down. If we believe that the God we serve is able, then we can stand up because we trust his power. We trust his wisdom. You see, that is why these three young men could say what they said, speaking some of the most riveting lines in all the Bible. I want to mention three things just to kind of sum this up to help you capture this, uh, help you see what's going on in their response. First of all, you need to notice they didn't 
need to defend themselves. They said, we don't need to defend you ourselves before you, O king. What are they saying? They're saying, we're not going to argue about this with you. We just won't. They're making it clear to the king by their calm statement. This wasn't belligerent. It was just stated plainly. They're making it clear to the king, we aren't in your hands, O king. We are in God's hands. So we're not going to argue with you. We're not going to try to win you over. This is a God thing. You can do whatever you want. They knew that their answer to him, their argument to him, would come in faithfulness and, if needed, in suffering. Second, they said that they had absolute faith in God's ability to deliver them from the furnace. They said God was able, and they wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know that. They had no doubt. But then it's the third thing they said that makes all the difference in the world. Third, they said that they were absolutely submitted to whatever God decided to do. They never presume that God will rescue them. They have no idea what God wants to do. They say, we we don't know. He can. He can do whatever he wants to do, but we don't know what he's going to do. And so while he could rescue us, it doesn't mean that he will. We know that, Nebuchadnezzar, and we want you to know that we're okay with that. Whether or not he rescues us is not the issue. Our faithfulness is the issue. See, for these three young men... God wasn't simply God over the furnace. He was God over their lives. And if he saved them or didn't, it was totally up to him, and it was actually beside the point. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm kind of thinking that would have been my number one issue. Will he save me? Will he rescue me? Anybody want to be honest today and say, I think that would be my number one issue? They understood he was God. They were not. They were just his followers. And that meant they would accept whatever he decided. That meant they felt that God was worthy of their faith, regardless of what he chose to do with the furnace. Now, now just think about that. What, What is at the heart of most people's faith? What is at the heart, honestly, of most of our faith? Isn't it the idea that God will be there for us, that he will not just be there, but he will rescue us, and he will deliver us, and he will provide for us, and he will come through for us? This is so important to understand. And it explains why some of us and some people we know have, have lived maybe sometimes for years with, uh, with a, a faith in God and then something happens and now everything collapses. And sometimes some of us maybe, maybe we've known people, we walk away from the faith because it turns out we were worshiping a God who was obligated to us to do what we wanted him to do. See, this this statement by these three young men introduces us to a type of faith that many people don't get. It's deeper than circumstances. It's deeper than deliverance. It says, whether or not I'm rescued is beside the point. I believe that God is God and he can do whatever he wishes, and I trust him, therefore. That means the only issue is my faithfulness. Someone said theirs was a faith in spite of the fire, not in light of the fire. Well, what happened next? Here's the third way to stand up. Stand up confident that no matter what happens, God will be with you. Look at verses 19 through 23. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Now, does that surprise you? I mean, if you're reading this for the first time and you don't know how it ends, as many of you do, this should surprise you. They were thrown into the furnace. They were not protected from the furnace. They were not rescued from it. I just You need to live with that for a moment. God let them get thrown in. And just try to let that sink in. Has anybody here ever been burned, you know, somewhat significantly? You know something, uh, maybe just an accident of some kind. You know something of the pain of being burned. This is one of the most horrible ways that any human being could treat another human being like a stick of wood to be burned up and consumed. It is awful. It is horrific. It is unimaginable what is going on. God let them get thrown in. They had to go through this. This is just like many of us have to go through suffering. It reminds us that life with God is not about being protected from trouble. It's not about avoiding pain and suffering. They are carried to the furnace. And we don't know what they were feeling, what was going through their minds, whether it was courage or faith or whether it was fear. I, I don't know. But think about it. They, they approach the flames. They feel the heat. They see the, man, the men who are carrying them collapse and die. And then they are falling into the flames. This actually happened. And then this remarkable thing, verses 24 and 25. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Now, who do you think that fourth man was who can appear from nowhere, who can cheat death, who looks in appearance like a son of the gods? Well, this furnace, which certainly looked like the end of their lives, it turns out to be the greatest thing they ever experienced because in the furnace, they met God. They were hoping to get delivered from the furnace, but God decided to deliver them in the furnace. And you see, when you know that, when you believe that, then you can stand up. See, God said to them what he sometimes says to people still all around the world. God said, I will meet you in the furnace, in the place where where full devotion to me can sometimes lead my followers, in a place that looks frightening and dangerous and painful because it is frightening, dangerous, and painful. And that place turns out to be where Jesus is. Turns out to be maybe not in this world But in the ultimate eternal scope of things, it turns out to be the safest place of all. Some people read this passage and they think that the fourth man was an angel. That may be so. We are not giving conclusive evidence one way or the other. But I think 
The fourth man in the furnace was Jesus, the Son of God. I think this was a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, God's Son. And I think that because as I read the entire Bible, I think that because Jesus, we are shown, knows about the furnace. Jesus promises to always be with us. Now, in the end, what is important is that there was a fourth man, that they were not alone, that God was with them in the fire. And that is the heart of our faith. That is what faith is about, not avoiding the fire, but knowing that we are never alone in the fire, that no matter what happens, God, our God, will be with us as we go through fire after fire after fire. And let me just say, this is so important for people who live in America in the 21st century. And you know why? Just about alone of the peoples in the world, Americans have this point of view, American Christians particularly, that suffering should never happen to us. You travel around the world and you speak to Christians in other countries and other nations, and for them, suffering is kind of a given. They know that this world is not our home. They know that this world has fallen. They know that the only perfect place is going to be in heaven one day with God forever. And so when suffering comes, it's hard, it's painful, but they accept it. But in America, we're shocked. We can't believe that it's happened. What is God doing? How could this be happening to me? And this story reminds us that when you're living in Babylon, when you're living in exile, fire, furnace, is a normal thing that happens. But what happens next? Look at verses 26 and 27. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their body, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. They were delivered. They were safe. And it kind of makes the whole story safe, doesn't it? Almost like it was okay for them to say what they said about not being delivered. Because we knew that they would be delivered. We knew that God would never allow them to be hurt. He just wanted to make sure that they would stay true to him. And I want to just tell you as you read this story, don't go there. Let me ask you a question. What if they hadn't been delivered? Would that have changed the story for you? Would that have ruined the lesson for you? And I want to tell you, if it would, then you've missed the point. God does not always choose to rescue his people. That's the point. I'm not just talking about what happens around our world today. I'm talking about the Bible. Lots of God's people suffer and die under God's sovereign hand. See, the point of the story is not whether or not God rescues. The point of the story is the fourth man in the fire. It's the presence of God in the fire and the faithfulness of those three men who said on the front end, throw us in without any expectation that they would be delivered. Men who, if they had died, would have said, that's okay because we love and trust God. He is worthy of our devotion even if he does not rescue us. What impact did that all have on the king? Look at verses 28 to 30. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. And if you haven't noticed yet, you can see it here. Nebuchadnezzar kind of has a thing about cutting people into pieces, (laughs) turning their houses into rubble. That's just something he, he enjoys, it seems. The last verse says, Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Well, what did the king find out? Well, we keep reading the story. We're going to see that he hasn't quite fully grasped who God is yet. But he is learning some big things. He is discovering that there is a God who could deliver his people from his hand. But I want you to notice this. I want you to see this. Do not miss it. The real issue is this. It took their faithfulness The faithfulness of these three men, it took their faithfulness in that fallen culture, even to the point of fire, for God to come to the king and to the culture's attention. Faithfulness to the point of fire. That's what God got the culture to sit up and pay attention and begin to see who God was. See, the turning point was when they refused to bow down. When in the face of all that cultural pressure and they stood before the king and he struck up the music and gave them the ultimatum and they said to him, we're not going to argue with you. You can throw us in. We may die. That's okay. Our God who is able, he can do whatever he chooses to do. We don't know what's best. We trust that he does. The issue is our faithfulness. And when they stood their ground in full view of the furnace, the music playing, What mattered was not their deliverance, but their faithfulness. What mattered was that fourth man in the flames. See, that's what our faith is about. And if you want to stand in Babylon, if you want to survive and thrive in exile, if you want to live wisely, then you cannot see God as kind of the the divine cavalry or your cosmic bellboy who's just waiting to come in and rescue you and meet your every need. You need to see him as the God who is able, the God who is sovereign, the God in whose hands we place our lives in absolute love and trust and faithfulness, believing that no matter what he chooses in his sovereignty is good and right. And friends, that's what changes the world. That's what changes the world. Let me ask you, what is God calling you today to, to do today? Are you hearing the Holy Spirit speak to you in any ways about specific things in your life? Are there areas in your life where you need to apply this story? Let me give you two questions to think about. Go ahead and write these down. First question is, where do you need to refuse to bow? Where in your life Do you need to refuse to bow? If you're sitting here going, I don't think this applies to me. We don't live in a time like this. I don't know of any area where I need to bow down. Let me tell you something. Please listen to me very carefully. If that's what you're thinking right now, you are already bowing down. You're already bowing down. If you are living in this culture which does not believe in God, which rejects the ways of God, which turns from his his beauty and his glory and his goodness, and if you feel no friction 
with that culture. That means one thing and one thing alone. It means you're just going right along with the flow of the culture. You are already bowing down. And so where do you need to refuse to bow? Second question is, where do you need to face the fire? Are you willing, are you willing to do what God says for you to do no matter what happens? Will you say, God, it doesn't matter. I trust you. I know you will always be with me, even in the furnace. And so I'm going to do what you say in trust, in, in humility. You know, this is what is so very amazing about our God. And this is also one of the reasons why I think it was Jesus who was in that fire with them. Think about the time in Jesus' life right before his crucifixion when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed that his father would spare him the suffering of a cross, of being executed by the authorities who wanted to make sure that he, Jesus, the Son of God, did not disrupt their empire, the Roman Empire, the Babylon of that day. He prayed that he would be spared the pain of carrying our sin on himself. Friends, we we cannot even conceive the agony of that. He prayed, Father, I want to be spared this, but even if I am not. Father, let this cup pass from me, but even if it does not. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Sometimes God delivers people from the furnace. Sometimes God delivers people in the furnace. Sometimes God lets his own son go through the furnace. Is there anywhere in your life where you are bowing down? This story, this true account tells us, don't bow down to anyone or anything but God. I want you to go ahead and bow your heads right now as we move to a time of prayer. And I I just want you to reflect on this for just a brief moment. Is there anywhere in your life where you're bowing down? Is there anything in your heart and in your mind that you need to give to God in confession right now and ask his forgiveness? Is there anywhere in your life you need to stand up, obey God, and trust God? It may be that individually you've experienced disappointment or hurt and it's kept you from following God fully. It could be that as you think about it, you realize there are values in our culture contrary to the ways of God and and you've been compromising with those, you've been bowing down. Would you decide now, would you decide now to pray? I'm going to follow you, God. I'm going to trust you to take care of me. But even if you do not, I'll still follow. I'll still follow. You can just tell that God that. Just let him know how good he is. Let him know how worthy you realize that he is of your praise and honor and worship. Father God, thank you. Thank you for this word which reminds us of who you are and who we are. Lord, thank you above all things for your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he went through the fire on our behalf. And that because of his death on the cross, Lord, we now can have full forgiveness for our sins, freedom 
from this world and all that it will do to us and, and the hope of life eternal in you, Father. Thank you for that. Lord, I want to pray if there is anyone here, even now in this moment, who's never met you, Lord, they've never come before you and they've never turned their life over to you. They've never repented of their sin and, and placed their trust in Jesus, your son, believing that what he did on the cross has paid for their sins. Lord, if they've never done that, would you now open their hearts to you and give them faith to trust you and know you. Save them, Father, as they turn their lives over to you. Lord, we pray that you would work in each one of our hearts today, that we would hear what you are saying to each one of us today, and that we would trust and follow, because, Lord, we know, we know that you are able believe that today, Father. We pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people say, amen.